0: Good morning, it's Tuesday the 17th of October and this is Govind Raj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital, which by the way, is in no state to host any games, leave alone the Olympics, as some have been dreaming about. Meanwhile, the top stories and themes for the day. The Middle East to prevent escalation of war keeps oil and markets steady. The Russians want Chinese Yuan from India for oil they're selling to India. Record Bollywood collections at the box office in the last quarter, could that momentum continue? And the India opportunity in a post-globalized multipolar world and what India must do with Jacob L Shapiro.
1: This is a core report with Govindraj Etiraj.
0: Diplomacy studies oil and the markets. Remember, when oil was projected to touch $100 very soon, and surely this calendar year, there was no war in the Middle East or military tensions anywhere in the world, apart from, of course, the Russia and Ukraine war, which has been waging for some time. What prompted firms like Goldman Sachs just three weeks ago to project oil at $100 was one, it had already gone up 30% or so at that time to breach $95 a barrel, and second, the impact of supply cuts by Saudi Arabia and Russia. But what has happened instead is that demand projections have turned weaker, so in some ways turning the argument on its head. Oil shot up on Friday though, up $5 a barrel to touch $91 a barrel, but on Monday it was around the same levels. After shrugging off the outbreak of the Hamas-Israel war, oil has now picked up fast, that is on Friday, gaining $5 a barrel to touch $91, but it's now slipping back. What's holding it here or thereabouts is the major diplomatic efforts by the United States and others to restrain Israel from launching a ground attack on Gaza. President Joe Biden is also expected to make a trip to Israel this week, according to some reports. Traders are really struggling to figure out how to trade this, said Amrita Sen, co-founder and director of research at Consultant Energy Aspects, according to Bloomberg, adding that the larger market is already factoring the fact that there are no direct supply losses. The International Energy Agency said last week that the recent pullback in prices from the highs of late September reflected an erosion in demand, especially in the United States where data is now showing seasonally weak gasoline consumption, according to Bloomberg again. Moreover, Saudi Arabia and its OPEC plus allies, having slashed crude output this year to prop up prices, are actually left with a healthy reserve of spare production capacity which could weather any shocks. So, the broader takeaway at this point, at least, seems to be that while supply controls could impact prices, as it seems to have in the recent past, demand or the potential of it, or in this case, the lack of it, is playing a stronger role in keeping prices down. Russian oil and the Chinese yuan You might recall discussions, including on the core report on the internationalization of the rupee, or the desire to move towards a global economy where the rupee plays a more pivotal role. It's also been pointed out that while it is a good desire and objective to have, getting there will take some time and lots of effort. A fresh hint of why a rupee as a reserve currency is still far away, or that there are other claimants to this coveted spot came after it emerged that Russian crude oil exporters to India want to be also paid in Chinese yuan. Now, this is apparently something the Indian government does not like, which in turn has led to some seven cargoes being held up, according to Reuters. India is the top importer of Russian seaborne oil this year, with refiners buying crude sold at a discount after some Western countries suspended imports from Moscow after its invasion of Ukraine. Reuters reported in July that Indian refiners began using yuan to pay for some oil from Russian sellers while continuing to use dollars and dirhams to settle most of their Russian oil purchases. And based on comments from officials that affected refiners, payment for seven cargoes is still pending. Some payments for recent cargoes delivered to at least two state refiners have been pending since the last week of September, Reuters is reporting. A ministry official said, or rather two Reuters, that It is not banned, and if a private firm has yuan to settle its trade, the government will not stop it, but it will neither encourage nor facilitate such trade. Refining sources told Reuters that traders have been ready to strike deals in dirhams, but Russian sellers have been holding out for yuan. Also a reminder to India and the world at large of the utility of the yuan in trade, particularly for Russia at this time when many other avenues are blocked. State-run Indian Oil Corporation, India's largest refiner, has used yuan and other currencies to pay for Russian oil, Reuters has reported earlier. Private Indian refiners have continued to pay in yuan and other currencies for Russian oil imports, sources told Reuters, with most Indian purchases of Russian oil paid in dirham, The report also says that settlement in yuan increases costs as rupees need to be first converted to Hong Kong dollars and then to yuan a process that costs 2-3% to more than settling in Dirham. While Indian state refiners would like to use rupees, and this is of course the clincher, to pay for Russian oil after the country's central bank last year announced a mechanism to settle foreign trade in rupees, Russia is less keen to accept rupees, given that the bilateral trade balance is tilted in Moscow's favour. The markets and some corporate news. Oil has held steady, as we discussed, and stock markets have oscillated in somewhat tight margins. The BAC Sensex ended at 66,167, down 116 points, while the Nifty 50 was down 19 points at 19,732. I would point out that Monday has ended on a more reasonable or a steady note than what it looked like it was going to do on maybe Sunday night. The rupee has stayed weak falling to about 83.28 against the US dollar on Monday again, marking its lowest level in the year against the greenback. The Reserve Bank of India has been selling US dollars to keep the rupee from falling more sharply. Moving on to a result of a bank, HDFC Bank, the banking behemoth created from the merger of HDFC and HDFC Bank, has reported a 51% jump in net profits for the second quarter of the current financial year, to 15,796 crore rupees. That's year on year. Total income of the bank was up 69% to 78,000 crore rupees. And the bank's net revenue grew by 33% to 38,000 crore rupees. And the net interest income for the same second quarter grew by 30% to 27,385 crore rupees. So, all very strong numbers. But if you were looking for somewhat broader signs of economic activity or pickup, Domestic retail loans grew by 112 percent, commercial and rural banking loans grew by about 30 percent, and corporate and other wholesale loans, excluding non-individual loans of HDFC, approximately grew about 8 percent. Notice upon notice from the government. The notices are now flying thick and fast. The Delta Group, owner of casinos, has received a fresh notice in one of its subsidiaries from the government, or specifically the Director General of GST Intelligence, that's Goods and Services Tax Intelligence, Kolkata, to pay up an alleged shortfall in GST to the tune of 6,384 crores, according to a regulatory filing made by the casino operator on october 14th now this comes nearly three weeks after its parent that's delta corp received another tax shortfall notice or set of notices amounting to about sixteen thousand eight hundred crores so in all the company is facing now tax demands worth over twenty-three thousand crore rupees shares of delta corp fell over 12 percent to hit a 52 week low on monday after it received that second notice and the demand now is for a period between 2017 and march 22 and is based on the gross bet value of all games played at the casinos during that relevant period the stock is now down close to about 40 percent on a year-to-date basis delta corp has however claimed that the amounts demanded are based on the gross bet value of all games played during the relevant period Demand of GST on gross bet value rather than gross rake amount has been an industry issue and various representations have already been made to the government at an industry level in relation to this issue, Delta has said. Now, of course, there is some further confusion on whether these amounts will apply prospectively after GST rates were raised or retrospectively. But it does appear that the demands are flowing retrospectively. But Delta is clearly seen confident seeing this through or perhaps has no choice but to present such a front. The question that, of course, I've always wondered is what is the social political thinking on this subject, at least at this point and from what people are saying? It could always be argued that the attraction of tax revenues, particularly in small states like Goa, where many of Delta's casinos float on a river, is greater than the moral hazard of people blowing up their savings or earnings in perhaps single nights. This debate, of course, is not unique to India and happens with what I would think in equal or greater intensity in developed countries as well. The question is, if the industry or investors who invest in the online version of the gambling games, apart from the physical version, that is those casinos on boards, are reading the room correctly. I would like to think that most politicians represent middle-class India in values in some way or the other. Now, when I say middle class, I mean the social and economic construct, which would mean that families who frown upon any form of vice as being harmful to families and children or both. Many of the gaming companies sidestep the moral wall, so to speak, by positioning themselves as tech companies, raising billions of dollars of capital and then crying foul about job losses when the government started shooting off tax notices. Remember, the government is only asking for more taxes to be paid and is not shutting them down. For let's say, creating distortions in society, or ruining young people's lives. Also remember that tech-enabled, app-based gaming is infinitely frictionless compared to traveling to Goa and then speedboating to a casino on that river. That's time and lots of money. The government now wants to uniformly tax both, as it perhaps should, and increase the deterrence because that is what most voters as family members would want. All this could of course change. Because the courts, and one such important or significant case is in court right now, take a different view and everyone falls in line. But the fact that gambling fundamentally is a vice will not change regardless of which tech-shaped veil you drape over it, not in the eyes of hundreds of millions of Indian families. Bollywood is going strong. Moving on from gambling to other forms of family-friendly entertainment, the last July to September year has been a blockbuster quarter for Bollywood and quite literally. A spate of successful films like Gather 2, Jawan, Dream Girl 2 preceded by several other hits including led by actor Shah Rukh Khan has led to some 1,720 crores of collections going by reports in the Economic Times as compared to about 1,579 crores in the previous quarter. Very broadly as a backdrop, 70% of industry's revenues come from theatrical or cinema releases while 30% comes from OTT or your streaming services like Netflix, Amazon, Prime, Sony and Apple who are also buying films either immediately or later and delivering them over the internet. So the numbers have to be seen in this context. Which is that precisely 3-4 to four months ago, the movie industry was preparing for one of its worst years ever and then a series of Hollywood blockbusters followed Bollywood blockbusters and then all was saved like a classic Hindi film, at least in the end and at least for now. The largest multiplex operator PVR Inox, whose fortunes swing by the week sometimes, is now launching a scheme whereby you can pay 699 rupees and watch 10 movies in a month on weekdays. There are of course some caveats here and there, but it's an interesting experiment to bring people to the movies and its launch at this time now either suggests a move in desperation or one of confidence stemming from recent successes and that a little push at this point could go much further to bring audiences back to watch films on the silver screen. Incidentally, theatre occupancy averages around 20% during the week and doubles around 40% over weekends, so clearly there are lots of empty seats going. I reached out to Karan Thorani, Senior Vice President and Media and Internet Analyst at Elara Capital. And I began by asking him how the box office was doing right now in his estimation and what lay ahead for the rest of the year.
1: So I think if you look at the box office collections, they've been robust over the last three months. Typically, I think that English content uh, you know, started off with that in the month of July. And August and September was all about volume rate. If you look at broader numbers where we are today, I think Hindi, we have seen growth of PennyMaker close to 40 to 45% versus pre COVID levels. And the contribution for any box office in pre COVID times was around 35 to 60% for the multiplexes. I think this is one of the first quarters in post COVID era wherein Hindi continued to move towards a contribution of 60 odd percent. Even Hollywood has seen strong growth to the tune of 25 to 30% because of higher ticket prices, movies like Vision and BB. The usual content in this quarter has been kind of a lagart. But broadly, I think the numbers seem to be good. We are seeing growth of more than 20% as far as box office revenue is concerned. If you compare this to pre COVID, it's a mix of both the things. It's led by ticket prices and
0: Right. So, slightly broader question, Karan. So, about a few months ago, maybe just before the Bollywood hits, that's Mission Impossible and Oppenheimer and all came, the whole industry was being written off, at least the exhibition part of it. So, have things turned around? And that's one. Secondly, what is the peak that we've ever seen in this space? So, for example, the figure that I have for just the Hindi part is about 1700 crores for the last quarter. I don't have the Hollywood number, but I'm just trying to understand what is the peak, the biggest number that we've ever hit in a quarter for all exhibition and then maybe we can look at how it is today.
1: If you look at the peak from exhibition style point, we are currently at the peak. So I've got data, say over the last seven to eight years increased broadly and numbers have never surpassed more than 20 to thirteen hundred records in any particular quarter. So you could say that you know July or September historically is the best July or September quarter that we were to have as far as these box office is concerned. Uh, one more very interesting trend in this quarter is that all these movies are Hindi franchise-wave films, these are not regional dubbed films, so that's part. And the question in terms of what has changed over the last three four months, you know, what is so different and compelling is as in the nature of content. We have moved away from remakes, we have moved away from just, you know, remakes of Hollywood and the films, we are making original films, IP led concepts. We are moving towards, uh, you know, franchise-based concept, films which are more led by VFX and various effects, you know, which will drive audiences, which are made at the last game, like Jamal and Patel. So I think these are some 3-4 reasons in terms of what has changed over the last 3-4 to four months. I think the concerns for the industry still persist because I think we've been very fortunate that since the last 3 months, whatever large films that have come, either the start of or the large have come, they have all been successful consecutively. I think it's a tough ask for this kind of momentum to continue forever. You will require support from small, medium budget content, which is currently not happening. And uh, we are kind of piggybacking, you know, in a very big manner towards large budget films. And these films contribute anyway, to 80% -80 of box office today. Would you
0: have a number for aggregate? I mean, all motion picture as viewed in cinema halls across India in a quarter, roughly.
1: So aggregate numbers in terms of gross box office across genres, the numbers have been in the range of 12 to 14 thousand crores, including your GST or entertainment tax, as why This number generally has been growing in the range of 7 to 8 percent and this time around, I think you will see strong growth because the numbers have been very compelling. But on an annualized basis, 10 to 15 percent because the first half, you know, was quite muted as far as cinema is concerned, the first half of the calendar year, that was quite muted. It's the second half, this quarter is good, next quarter is also looking reasonably okay. So on a year basis, the growth is not more than
0: 15%. Let's look ahead. You know, one of the things that you pointed out in a note that you've just put out is this new pricing strategy from PVR Inox, where they're saying that you pay 699 rupees and you can come and watch a movie 10 times a month on non-peak days or basically not on weekends. Is that something that's going to fly before we come to the economics of it?
1: It's a very good plan that they've introduced and see, a sort of permanent plan. They have clearly mentioned that this plan is only for 20,000 customers for now. And 20,000 customers means it's a very small fraction of the overall footfalls, which is a very large number. It's not even 0.1%, so there's no impact of this as such if it's only for a specific number of customers. Our dependence on large-budget clips have increased consistently. Small-medium-budget content is not coming in large numbers in terms of footfalls. They really want to get the footfalls back on track on a consistent basis. We have seen this earlier as well, and last year, the one quarter reported a very strong performance, and the other two quarters are very weak. And uh, they want to drive that footfall consistently, and that's why they are doing this. And I think, in terms of potential, I think this is a good thing because this is not going to lead to any increased investments. It's more of acid sweating. So I think from that, it really makes sense. It's a good uh, investment strategy. But the positive impact of this will come only if people do come in large numbers, only we'll if the content also improves. And this is extended to more than 20000 customers.
0: And of course, people come and eat popcorn and drink cold rings and so on. So it's interesting because you said 17% on weekdays, but even on weekends, from your report, it's 41%, which is an average. I'm sure for big movies, it fills up completely. It seems to be a tricky business. So what's your outlook for the next three to six months? I think you've already given us a sense that it is going to be tough to maintain this momentum. But anything else that you're expecting or looking out for as we go towards the end of the calendar?
1: I think October or December quarter, we made Raghu it because the Hollywood content, the flow is coming slowly now because of the Hollywood strike, which is there, of the street riders over there. So that's one problem which is there. Secondly, in terms of regional, it's been a selective approach. Jader has done well. And before Jader, we saw regional things not win that well. So regional has been quite selective and volatile. And within Hindi, you are going to piggyback on Tanki, extra ties part three for the performance in terms of how things were putting the quarter. So, it's a sure, sure thing that this quarter will not be as compelling as the July, September quarter, but definitely, even if we are able to kind of move towards 80-90% of pre-COVID levels, as far as the overall box office is concerned, I think that's going to be a good sign. And nonetheless, I think the, the end I would put it this way that, you know, things are improving for the better. As far as content is concerned, the worst so seems to be over. Now, we are trying to make differentiated content. Whether or not it fits to the audience, that's a separate thing altogether, but things are definitely on the verge of an improvement.
0: Karan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. The new multipolar world and opportunities. India can clearly benefit from the changing global order. Jacob L. Shapiro, partner and director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments told me over the weekend in the core reports weekend edition. According to him, India has inherent strengths by the virtue of its skilled human capital to become a viable manufacturing alternative to China. So even if you assume the worst possible government policy from India, I think India has enough strengths by just the virtue of where it is, by the virtue of its human capital, the number of people it has, how young they are, how ambitious and skilled and interested in the world they are. Just that a billion plus Indians coming online and wanting to be able to do all these things is going to move India in the right direction, Shapiro told me. He also added and pointed out which other countries he was betting on and why and which industries or sectors excited him within that. So do log in and log on to www.thecore.in for the
2: detailed interview with Jacob Al Shapiro and here is what he told me. Yeah, I won't give you any individual names, but I'll give you uh, th- three sectors that we are really, really interested in where we think a lot of that tech disruption is happening. If you rewind 10, 15 years ago, where would you want to be? You'd want to be in cloud computing. You'd want to be the Microsofts and the Googles and thing like that. So what is the cloud computing of the next 10 to 15 years? Um, I think the energy space is ripe for this. I think in some ways the energy situation today where we have the move towards renewables, but it's not clear which technology is going to rise and do the best. For all we know, some scientists at MIT could figure out nuclear fusion tomorrow, and it's a completely different conversation you and I would be having. I mean, you really have to track this stuff in real time. And I think there's going to be opportunities. The metaphor I use is, imagine you could go back in time and buy standard oil in the United States before people figured out that oil was going to take over the global economy. We have those sorts of opportunities in energy. So whether it's hydrogen or nuclear, fusion or fission, Um, wind, solar, geothermal, or something that hasn't even been invented yet that gets invented in the next year, that's one area to really be focusing on and to really keep on top of technological developments. In a similar vein, I think the biotech sector is also incredibly interesting. And that was, for me, the lesson of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, Moderna and Pfizer, they could have produced that vaccine within weeks. They had it designed within weeks. It's just that U.S. regulatory systems and global regulatory health systems were not able to Approve it in time because we didn't know that we could create things that quickly. There's a whole bunch of fascinating biotechnology coming down the pipeline, and there's going to be more diseases with climate change and all these other things. I think that's going to be a really, really interesting sector to watch. And then I think we're also just at the very, very beginning stages of a second space race. And India's here too with that lunar lander that you guys had while the Russians had theirs blow up in their face, or I, I think it was the Russians. But in general, in a unipolar world where everybody was friends and we all wanted to join the WTO space was seen as a neutral space if you'll forgive the pun the united states and russia worked together in space for a long time servicing the international space station it was the one sort of sector of the world where everybody came together and that's not true anymore so now you have all these countries are trying to figure out okay well how do i protect my satellites how do i put up satellites so i can have communications how do i protect them from attack and things like that so i think anything related to space is also interesting. and then at a country level I would tell you that the countries that I think are the geopolitical pivots of the next five to 10 years, and they may do well, they may do badly, but I I think that they have the potential to do really well, it's Brazil, India, Turkey, Indonesia, Mexico. I honestly don't even pay attention to most American newspapers anymore. When I wake up in the morning, I try to read the main newspapers from those five countries because that's going to tell me a lot more about what's going on in emerging markets and in the world than listening to what the latest thing was that Donald Trump tweeted or said at some ridiculous campaign rally in the United States. So those for me are the five most interesting countries. They all have tremendous challenges. I can make the bear case for any of them, but they also all have tremendous potential. And if they can get policy and potential to line up in the same direction, I think those are countries that are really going to lead the way forward. So I don't know if it's all of them are going to do well. It could be none of them do well. I, I don't think that's the most likely scenario. But those are the five places where I spend my time looking the most closely right now from an emerging market perspective.
0: Before I go, interesting news from the United States, where the highest mortgage rates in 23 years are dragging down home sales to their lowest levels since the subprime crisis period, says the Wall Street Journal. Sales of previously owned homes in 2023 are expected to dwindle to a rate not seen since 2011, when the United States population was smaller and the country was still recovering from one of the worst housing crises ever, according to many economic forecasts. Total number of existing home sales in 2023 would stand at around 4.1 million, the smallest number since about 2008, the year the Lehman Brothers-led banking and financial collapse happened, according to the Wall Street Journal. That's it from me. Have a great day ahead. This was the Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in, that is, www.thecore.in, or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the Thank you for listening.